All right, good morning, welcome back. Uh, it's Pastor Lars here from Lord of Grace. Uh, I want to welcome you back to my uh, Thursday morning live stream Bible studies about different topics. This Lent, we're going to keep looking at the issue of sacrifice and the cross. Uh, last week, if you uh, stayed through the whole hour and 20 minutes of me going on and on and on and on, um, we, you know, we talked a lot more about atonement. Well, this week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look a little bit at the idea of a scapegoat and the scapegoat mechanism. How does that work? Is Jesus uh, a scapegoat? Does he fit into that paradigm at all? Is that another way of understanding who Jesus is? So let's get started with that. Uh, scapegoat, what does that mean? Uh, if you're not a huge student of the depths of anthropology, uh, the scapegoat mechanism, as understood, and I don't know if it, I don't know if it actually ever appeared in any particular place in this exact form, uh, but the idea behind it is, you've got two groups of people, two families, two tribes, Hatfields and McCoys, whatever, right? And so one commits a crime. Uh, there's some grievance against one. One shoots, you know, I grew up in the country, right? One shoots the neighbor's dog, the other shoots his dog. Next thing you know, there's fights. And so with each act, there's a retaliation. With each retaliation, there's another retaliation. This is the revenge cycle. And it can go on forever and ever and ever, right? That, that every grievance, every slight must be addressed with an act of violence to show I'm not going to be the last one. Uh, I had a kid when I was a camp counselor out in New Jersey, and there was a kid, he was uh, from Trenton, and uh, his counselor his, his counselor didn't understand the ways of, of the streets in Trenton, and uh, the kid wouldn't wake up in, in the morning, and the counselor said, look, dude, if you're not, you gotta go to breakfast, if you don't wake up, I'm gonna sprinkle water on your face. Told him this, kid heard it, so, Kid wouldn't move, kid wouldn't move, warning, warning, warning. Uh, finally, sprinkles water on his face. Kid turns around, just clocks the counselor. Um, the counselor was way bigger and almost didn't know what to do. So, of course, he ended up in my office. And, uh, and I'm like, what in the heck? You don't hit adults. And he's like, I don't stay hit. I, I didn't understand that phrase. I don't stay hit. If someone hits me, I always hit back. You know, that, that in his world... If you, anyone who does any slight to you, you must retaliate or you look weak. And there's probably a pretty good logic in it. That, that way of thinking probably had, what helped him a lot on the streets of Trenton. Uh, didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily needed out at a Bible camp in the woods, but whatever. That's that same idea, right? The revenge cycle. You get caught in it forever, right? You watch the Godfather movies and they keep these vendettas going for generations, well, how do you stop it? How do you stop the warring factions? Um, one method, of course, is just to have a dictator come in. You know, yes, you will hate each other, but I have more power, you know, you will stop fighting. The Saddam Hussein method, right? What we saw in Iraq, he kept the warring factions at bay by basically sheer power. The second we took him out of the equation, the vendettas were still there, the grievances were still there, now they turned on each other because there wasn't the power. Well, in a scapegoat mechanism, what the groups do is they pick a, again, ideally, or at least in the archetype, a goat. And the goat has to be a good goat, 
uh, an innocent goat. The goat didn't eat anybody's stuff that it wasn't supposed to eat. Uh, and then you would smear blood on the goat. And then there would even be a ritual sort of um, hating of the goat, where everyone would yell at the poor goat and blame the goat for everybody's problems. And, um, and then, in a great ceremony, they would chase the goat out of town and the goat would be essentially be covered with everybody's sins. So the goat would take everybody's sins. And everybody at some conscious level would go, I know I'm blaming the goat. At an unconscious level, what you're doing is you're projecting all that desire for revenge and violence uh, onto a third party. And so the goat then takes it, the goat is driven out of town and order and peace is restored. Because now, who's the last one that got hit? The goat, right? So now, nobody is staying hit, nobody, nobody has a vendetta anymore. The scapegoat uh, takes it. So what you're doing is you're projecting onto the goat uh, all the bad things that are causing it. That's the idea behind a scapegoat. So when someone, someone says, I'm being a scapegoat, essentially what they're saying is, I'm being blamed for whatever. I'm be, whatever is being, something is being projected on me that I didn't do, that I don't deserve, and um, you know, this is what's being done to keep the peace. You see this in uh, criminal trials, right? Uh, it's, it's not a just way, but how many times does it happen where there's some horrible crime that happened and everyone in the community is baying for blood and the prosecutor, whoever, you know, say they're a little morally shady, they know perfectly well that whoever over here didn't cause it and he didn't kill the girl and that guy's innocent. But if as a prosecutor you say that guy's innocent and defend him and get him off, the community still has a desire for revenge that's unmet. So what, what do you do? What do they do? Again, a morally shady prosecutor would go ahead and prosecute the innocent person anyways. Why? Uh, because when that, pers when that person gets all that anger projected on them, the community is back at peace. Justice is not served. You know, the real, the real criminal is still out there. But in a sense, the community doesn't care because somebody paid, right? And if somebody pays, that desire is satisfied. And so that's who a scapegoat is. A scapegoat gets that projected on them. So here's the question. Uh, is Jesus a scapegoat? Um, well, we do know that Jesus gets projected with a lot of things. Um, but let's look at the Old Testament just a little bit to get back again into the depths of uh, the sacrificial cult and the idea of sacrifice and how that works. So we'll jump back for a minute to the book of Numbers and um, look a little bit at this. All right. Numbers 15, it says, But if you unintentionally fail to observe all these commandments, that the Lord has spoken to Moses. Everything that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day the Lord gave commandment and thereafter throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, the whole congregation shall offer one young bull for a burnt offering 
a pleasing odor to the Lord, together with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the Israelites, and they shall be forgiven." So this isn't dealing with a feud. There, there's no particular feud here. This is, you're getting at Numbers 15, so they've already gotten a big list of do's and don'ts. And what do you do if, you fail to, if they fail to do it, right? Even unintentionally. So you're still, you're still guilty even if, you, you know, even if it wasn't your plan, okay? So what do you do? Well, uh, then you have to offer the sacrifice. And it's a pretty intense sacrifice. Remember, offering a bull... Bulls are big. That's a lot of meat. Uh, you're, you're losing a lot of potential food, and, and instead of eating it and feeding your family with it, uh, you're burning it. It goes up in smoke. Well, actually, the priest was allowed to eat it, um, but that's kind of how the priests got fed. But anyways, you didn't get it. It wasn't your bull anymore. So you would burn it, um, and it would be a pleasing odor to the Lord. That's a phrase that gets that's throughout the uh, first five books of the Old Testament, a pleasing sacrifice that God smells the bull and, you know, loves that steak. Um, and um, now, of course, if you, you wonder why churches run around waving incense, it's a way of kind of ritually doing the, ritually doing that without the, all the animal and the blood. Um, okay, so then you give a grain offering with it, so a certain amount of wheat or whatever it is you're harvesting, and a drink offering, so you're giving a certain amount of wine. So pretty much anybody who produces anything is going to lose something here. Um, and one male goat for a sin offering. But if you notice that, the goat is the sin offering, not the bull. I mean, it's all part of a package, but the one who takes the, 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 one who takes the sin is the bull. And it makes atonement uh, for all the congregation, and they shall be forgiven. So they're all forgiven. Uh, and who ends up becoming... Now, is the goat the one who takes on the sin? Eh, maybe. Uh, or is it just understood that the goat is part of what you have to give up? Remember, in most of the world, goats are still a very primary animal. I, I found this out on a Chopped episode a couple years ago. Goat is the most eaten meat in the world. It, it's, not, it's not beef, chicken, fish, whatever. It's goat. And that makes sense because pretty much no matter how bad off your, you know, your farmland is, a goat will eat just about darn near anything. Um, I was at a state fair in Colorado a couple summers ago, and we went into the goat barn with the kids, and there was this pen, and there was a goat in it. And the pen had a fresh bale of fresh hay on one side. On the other side, a plastic bag with fresh hay on the other side. The goat was eating the plastic bag. And then, and I posted it on Facebook and all these people were going, I feel bad, the poor goat, he's, he's going to hurt his system. And I'm like, dude, the goat's swimming in fresh hay. Nobody's depriving this goat of anything. It's a goat. They eat everything. Um, and, um, but that's kind of their nature. So they're, they're a common animal, but they're also an important one. And so all of this makes atonement. So it makes you right with God again, right? Now, notice, it doesn't say anything in here about wrath. I'm, I'm back on my wrath hobby horse, but it doesn't say anything here about uh, 
the, the goat taking God's wrath or placating God's wrath. It just means you're good with God again, right? You know, I can, I can be disappointed in my kids for doing something wrong. It doesn't mean I'm filled with wrath. Um, but, so there are hints of this, right? There are hints of the idea in the Old Testament of animals being a sacrifice and through the sacrifice we get right with God. Um, but it doesn't say that the purpose of the sacrifice is to placate wrath. It just gets you right with God again, right? Um, maybe that's implied, a certain, amount of, a certain amount of wrath, I suppose, and anger is implied in God being upset. But it doesn't put it in quite that wording, does it? Um, so, let's go on, let's jump to the New Testament here and look at the dynamics of Jesus and things being projected on him. Right? And I think this is, a, this is a very common theme in the New Testament. People projecting onto Jesus uh, their own ideas of what he should be, of what they want him to do, uh, projecting their own uh, uh, desires onto him. And Jesus is going to sometimes meet those projections and sometimes he will uh, violate those projections. And you'll, there will be consequences for that. So. Matthew 27. The classic example of this is Jesus and Barabbas. So let's look at this, Matthew 27. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they'd handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Okay, the governor is Pontius Pilate. Well, that, that's who this is, right? And we're all fairly familiar with this scene of Pilate, you know, it's the Passover, and Pilate goes and sets out the two prisoners and offers people a release. There's no Roman record of this happening here, or basically ever happening. Uh, as far as we know, Pilate didn't ever offer people the chance of release for anything. However, that doesn't mean he didn't. Uh, we don't have a record of every execution Pilate made because there's just way too darn many of them. Uh, but it is an interesting idea, you know, that this crowd is baying for blood, right? The crowd is angry, the crowd is mad, and, and he's going to give basically the crowd uh, a one, give them a little bit of choice so they feel like they have some agency in it, which isn't the dumbest idea for dictators, you know. Give people a little bit of agency in something and they'll forget about all the other things they have no agency about, right? And remember, Pilate's mandate was just to prevent riots and rebellions. That was his job. Uh, his job wasn't to do justice and, uh, you know, truth and whatever. Uh, it was just to prevent riots and rebellions and maintain Roman power. So he decides at this time that he's going to let them have one prisoner. Let them have one prisoner. Now, the idea that Barabbas, who was a militant and a zealot and probably a killer of Romans, would even been allowed to be considered, eh, I don't know, historians aren't sold on it.
but it's an interesting idea. Also, if you look at the name Barabbas, piece of trivia here, Bar Abbas means son of the father. So the, the weird thing that the people, they have Jesus, the son of the father, or Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, and of course, Barabbas is calling himself this. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, then you have this thing of Pilate's wife goes ru running in, sends a messenger. I had a bad dream. Uh, did that happen? I don't know. But we do know that the Romans did take dreams and omens very seriously. And it is not out of character that a Roman official would have thought they saw an omen about something and then acted according to that. That was actually pretty common. Uh, so the people have to decide. Now, that particular place where this happened, they, you, you, they've actually gone there, kind of reconstructed uh, the space there. They figured you maybe only could have fit about 40 people at that time. So it's not quite the massive crowd that you think it is. Um, and it does say that a lot of them were the, pre, the chief priests and uh, sort of their minions. So the number of common people on, you know, sitting there on a Monday morning at, at, during workday hours who would have been there, eh, probably not that many. But again, let's run with it. So you got the Roman guy who, who's the he's, the, he's the bad guy here, right? He's the occupier, he's the imprisoner, he's the, he's the imperialist, he's the executioner, and he's giving the people a choice. What do the people want? Do they want the violent guy or do they want the peaceful guy? And what do the people pick after being prompted by and prodded by the priests? They want the violent guy, right? Release the violent guy. That's who we want. And what an interesting flip it is, you know, from Jesus being hailed as he's coming into town on Palm Sunday, right? Here, what are they projecting on him? He's the savior, right? They're projecting their desires for a free Israel. They're projecting their desires for revenge on Rome. And he is the one who's going to help them do that. So they call him Hosanna. Later he gets arrested and they realize this guy's not gonna start anything. He's just gonna die. And so now they project their anger. Uh, and you know, Pilate seems to think that it's jealousy uh, that the chief priests are just jealous that Jesus has more popularity than them. Uh, I don't rule that out either. You know, institutional, religious institutional people are always kind of suspect of people who show up at the ground level uh, getting lots of popularity. Um, but here he's, so he's projected one hand their desire for revenge. Now when he fails to fulfill their desire for revenge, Jesus gets the desire for revenge projected on him. So Jesus then becomes the one who takes uh, the innocent one who all that anger and that rage gets projected on. And it's a brilliant move by Pilate because who's the one they really are mad at? It's him and his Roman buddies. He's the one they're really mad at. But if he can get them to blame Jesus, to project their anger on Jesus. See, Jesus failed you. Jesus didn't give you the, re the, the, the revolution you wanted, so they project their anger onto Jesus. So Jesus becomes the scapegoat, in a sense, right? Uh, between the factions. It's a brilliant move Pilate does. All right, let's keep going, uh, starting at verse 22. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus, who's called the Messiah? All of them said, let him be crucified. Then he asked, why? What evil has he done? 
But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourself. Then the people as a whole answered, his blood be on us and our children. So he released Barabbas for them and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. You know, Pilate, it's good theater, right? You know, I wash my hands. Well, no, you order the execution. You can, well, you know, oh, the people made me do it. The people made me do it. I had no choice. No, you totally had a choice. You didn't have to, you didn't have to set up that scenario at all. But what you're getting the people to do is do the dirty work for you. And again, Pilate sensing a riot going, let's feed them some red meat. Let's give them someone to project their anger onto, and then they'll take responsibility for it, and then I can pretend I'm innocent, even though I know I'm killing an innocent person, right? Pilate's playing, Pilate's playing the people here as it's set up. Uh, and so, all right, so let's keep going one more as it keeps going. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crowd, the crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. This is exactly what is done in the scapegoat ritual. The scapegoat is, remember, you project all your anger on it, but part of the ritual with the scapegoat is also to exalt it, right? It is both the villain and the savior at the same time. It occupies both places, and so that would often be part of the ritual. Um, and in a lot of cultures, when there would be the, the person who'd be sacrificed, they would, um, what is the one where you're like, they, they would make you like a king for a day? Oh, who was it that would do this? Uh, there, there was an emperor somewhere and he would, he would make somebody a, a king for a day. And that king for the day would be the one who would take, uh, who would have to be responsible for all the decisions. And then at the end, the king would get killed. And the idea would be that that would cleanse the, the kingdom of whatever bad omen was coming. Oh, I wish I knew where that was. Um, it's that same idea. You're fake crowning him as king, and then you're killing him, right? He's, and the soldiers in their own way are kind of acknowledging that he's the savior. He is saving the peace, um, and he is the king. They don't know, you know, in a sense, they're mocking him, but he really is. But again, they're doing that ritual. You exalt him, and then you kill him. So he gets dumped, all the anger, all the rage. It all gets projected on him. All right. Let's do one more, then we'll wrap it up. This is John's version. I've been reading you Matthew's version. Here's John's version. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the crowd and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. 
He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but to gather into him the dispersed children of God. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. So there's that great line, better that one man die, right? So what's the, what's, what's the priests worry? The priests are worried that Jesus' people might actually try this rebellion thing, and then Rome would crush the rebellion and kill them all. And they're not wrong on that point. Uh, that is exactly how Rome dealt with rebellions. And so Caiaphas is, is seeing this as, yes, I know he may be innocent, but it doesn't matter if he's innocent. He has to go so that we can live. He has to die so we can live, right? He has to be the sacrifice. He has to be the one that, that, that takes the punishment so that all of us don't take the punishment. And, and so you read this and you go, okay, but who's, who's being bought off here? Whose wrath is being placated? Nowhere in this stuff is it God's wrath and nowhere in this is it about hell. In fact, with Caiaphas, it's not even about sin, right? Caiaphas didn't really believe in hell, right? He, wasn't, he didn't believe in a resurrection. He didn't believe in an afterlife. That was his version of Judaism. So, um, so who's being bought off? Whose wrath? The crowd's wrath? Rome's wrath? That's who he's being placated. It's an earthly wrath. It's not an internal thing, that, an exchange that's happening with God within himself where he kills part of himself to placate another part of himself in his wrath. No, the, the, the wrath is the wrath of the people. It's the wrath of Rome. That's who's being bought off. He dies so that there isn't a rebellion, so that there isn't a revolution. He dies so the people can live, so Rome's wrath is placated. So Rome is bought out. So the peace is restored. That's who's being bought out. That's whose wrath it is, which is probably not how we've usually constructed it. Um, you know, and again, why did this not become the primary way of understanding Jesus? That he was a expedient political sacrifice to buy, you know, to buy off Rome and the crowd. You know, why, 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 why was that not the dominant understanding of why he died? Why did that not become dominant and instead it became about heaven and hell and the afterlife and these kind of things? And I think some of it's Paul. The Apostle Paul didn't, you know, all, all Paul knew about Jesus is that he was crucified and raised and that he did the Last Supper. As far as we know, that's all Paul knew about Jesus. Paul didn't hang out with him personally. He met the disciples, so I'm assuming the disciples would have told him stories about Jesus, but in all of Paul's writings, those are the only three things about Jesus' life that he talks about. He doesn't talk about Caiaphas or the priests or the crowd or Barabbas, and he doesn't talk about any of the stories of the parables. And so all Paul has to work with is he died and was raised and he instituted, you know, the last, he instituted communion at the Last Supper. So Paul has to figure out how to make sense of Jesus' death. What does it mean, right? And if Jesus is dying for the nation, what does that mean, you know? Is he dying in an earthly political way, you know? Or, for Paul, the wrath became, went from Rome's wrath to God's wrath. 
And so I guess if you were somebody who wanted to really try to stretch it, you could say that, well, you know, God used to use uh, empires as punishment to punish the people for their sins. You know, that would very much be Isaiah and Amos, and there's plenty of prophets who said that. But that is now Paul explains it. Jesus is dying for the Father's wrath instead of Jesus is dying for Rome and the crowd's wrath. And yet you read the Gospels, it's so obvious that what it means when he says he died for the nation. And people do this all the time, right? People go and they sacrifice themselves or, you know, for, for the nation and the country. And innocent people get killed in order to keep the peace. It happens all the time in our world. And, and so essentially they are scapegoats. So is Jesus a scapegoat? Depends on how tightly you want you wanna hang with the sort of anthropological archetype. But there's no way you can get around that the Gospels clearly say that Jesus is being sacrificed, not necessarily by his own people, but by his own priests, who are of, who are of his people, but it's not, the, it's not the crowd. The crowd is really just even being put up to it by the priests. That it's his own priests sending him to the Romans to buy off the Romans so the Romans don't destroy the priesthood and so that the people don't die in a massacre. That's whose wrath is being bought off. That's what it means in this case to be dying for the sin. What is the sin? The sin is the sin of Rome's imperialism. The sin is the sin of the people desiring revenge. That's the sin that he's dying for. That's at least another way of looking at it. Jesus is the scapegoat. Um, so that's all I have. That's all I have for today. Feel free to leave questions or comments in there if you want, uh, or just message me uh, if you want more conversation about this and the scapegoat mechanism. There's plenty of good books out there. There's a guy named Rene Girard who devoted his whole career to talking about Jesus and uh, sacrifice. Um, good stuff to read. There's lots of good insights. I'm just giving you another way of understanding this and um, outside of sort of the classical understanding. So I'll be back again next week. We'll do another one. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, I hope you have a good Lent. You can following along your Lenten journey and uh, that your faith is able to be built up uh, in, a, in a time of repentance. God bless.